Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha. Uh, if, you're, if it's your first Sunday, especially welcome to you guys. Uh, it's, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, as Peter said, I think you said our series, wrote in share. At least you talked about the, did you? Okay. Uh, we are in Zechariah right now for our sermon series, which will take us through June. Uh, Zechariah is one of the final Old Testament prophets, which we call a return prophet. So he prophesied uh, like Haggai and Malachi as well, which kind of flanked the book. Uh, during the return of the exiles from Babylon, around 520 B.C. Uh, if you want to turn there, though, uh, it's on page 794 of your pew Bibles, or you can turn in your phones as well, or if you have a Bible app or your own Bibles. Uh, and uh, we'll read from Zechariah 3, 1 to 10 here in just a second. Uh, but if you are new, uh, the prophets are a very interesting book uh, of the um, section, rather, of the scriptures that tell us a lot about the gospel. Uh, they, uh, in, in a lot of ways, to serve as kind of this um, intermediation point between Old Testament narrative and the things uh, to which it was pointing all along, which is Jesus Christ. So Zechariah then, really, there's so much to say in terms of recap. So if you uh, are just joining us, this will be um, very, very uh, crude in terms of, uh, and simple in terms of a recap. But Zechariah is basically a prophet uh, to whom God is giving visions about Jesus. If you have that, you have a lot. And actually, every prophet serves the same ministry. Uh, they're receiving visions about Christ ahead of time, shrouded in Old Testament imagery and events and people, but talking about Christ through that language. So if you know something about the Old Testament and something about the gospel, the prophets get a little bit easier to understand. It's, it's still quite tricky, uh, but it'll be a little bit easier to understand them if you understand that they're using Old Testament language to talk about Jesus being the better version of those things that came uh, beforehand. So if that's new or if that's kind of going over your head, we'll give some examples of that today and throughout this series. But uh, at the end of the day, or just uh, to kind of start off on this basis, just understand that Zechariah is talking about Christ and his great and glorious gospel. So Zechariah 3, 1 to 10, uh, today we're going to look at um, this uh, person, the high priest Joshua, and another Joshua uh, referred to towards the end of the passage, which I'll explain here in just a second, but... For now, let's read uh, Joshua 3, 1 to 10. Then he, this is Zechariah speaking, showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right, right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house, and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Hear now, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. For behold, in the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity of this land on, in a single day. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, Every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. All right, so um, what I want to do first, kind of like these last few weeks, is explain the vision, uh, at least in part. So we'll give some general ex explanations here as to the main characters and who they represent, and then we'll come back um, to, uh, to walk through it more slowly. So basically what Zechariah is seeing, and remember, this is an apocalypse. This is not really classic prophecy in the sense that it's a little bit more God saying, I'm, I'm just going to do this in the future, but he's seen hidden things. He's seen heavenly visions. He's seen symbols, kind of like John in the book of Revelation at the end of the, at the, end of the Bible, which if you've read that book, it might sound quite similar, and it is. There's a lot of shared imagery, actually. We'll look at Revelation here some more today and probably almost every week throughout uh, this series. So he's quite lucid, though. He's awake. He's just seen these uh, visions, these kind of trippy visions of God and uh, people and stones with seven eyes on them and uh, filthy garments and all kinds of things. And, he's, uh, and, and God is saying, in some cases, this is what this means. In this passage, though, we'll, um, it's a little bit trickier in one sense because we don't have expl explanation 
clauses, but uh, elsewhere in the Bible we do, so we'll, we'll, we'll get to some of that. But what he's basically seen here is uh, these four characters, Joshua, the high priest of Israel, who's uh, a special priest, he's kind of the leader of the priests in a sense, he's in the line of Aaron and Moses, if you know them, in the Old Testament. The angel of the Lord, who is very important to understand this piece, because if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, we talked a lot more about this and defended this idea. Uh, but when we see the angel of the Lord, biblically, we're seeing pre-incarnate Jesus. Uh, the angel of the Lord is not just an angel. He's not an angel of the Lord. He is the angel of the Lord who is like God in the Bible. He creates holy ground when he stands on it. Only God does that in the Bible. When he's worshipped, he does not rebuke people or say, stop doing that like other angels. He accepts the worship. And yet he's not God at the same time because he talks to God. And so as, as Trinitarian Christians, we can explain this tension. He is the second person of the triune Godhead. He is not just an angel. He is Christ before he was, he was Christ. He's Jesus before he was Jesus. He's the Son of God before he was incarnated into human flesh. And so the angel of the Lord is there as well. Then you have Satan, who is uh, the prince of dark angels. We'll talk more about him in a second. And then you have God him, himself. And so what happens here, basically, to summarize it, is Satan accuses Joshua before God. The Lord rebukes Satan. The angel of the Lord goes to bat for Joshua, cleaning him up, uh, associate, associates with his salvation in, in different ways. Then he makes promises about a future work of God that will basically do for all what has been done to Joshua individually in the vision. And so I've used this idea a lot, this word a lot in the series already, and I'll use it again. Joshua is a microcosm of the human experience. And the passage actually tells us this, because it starts small and gets big. It's, it starts with this one image, with this one man, then it ends with this more cosmic or global or universal idea, saying a day is coming where this kind of thing is going to happen for all people. And so it helps us write in the passage. Even if it wasn't there, we could still make these kinds of assertions. Uh, but the passage, the vision that Zechariah is getting that God wants him to see is quite helpful in explaining these things. All right, so let's walk through this. Uh, we'll go back to the very beginning, walk through a little bit more slowly with this um, synopsis in mind. First, we're going to look at Satan, the accuser. In the first couple of verses, um, we don't see a lot of this in the Bible. It, it's, it's fascinating to see Satan alone talk. You don't see it a lot. Uh, but before God as well, we learn a lot about who he is and a lot about who God is and how much greater God is than, than he, uh, but also a lot about his MO and how exactly he's attacking Christians and then, therefore, how we can fight back. And so we'll get to that. But one thing you see right off the bat with, the, with these verses, and maybe you notice this, is that Satan is not on equal level with God. He's not on equal level with God. This is not a bout. Uh, this is not a fight. You know, there's no question who's in control. Uh, Satan is standing as the accuser there, but he's unable to speak. So we, we've said this a lot at Hiawatha before, but this is, uh, biblical theology is not Star Wars. This, this is not two equal and opposite sides of the force here. Uh, God is greater. God actually creates the devil, not as the devil, but as a glorious angel of light in the very beginning before the, the, the devil falls away and becomes a demon, uh, along with a third of the angelic host. And that's a, a huge thing. We can't explain all of that today. The Bible is kind of uh, a little bit foggy on the details surrounding that, but it gives us enough to know that he was not created evil, but he fell away. So there are good and bad angels uh, then, biblically, but also in our reality as, as well. Revelation 12.10, at the end of the book, um, says this about Satan. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. So what, what this verse helps with, along with Zechariah 3.1, is it tells us a bit of what Satan's main MO is. What his mission is. How he's fighting. What he does before God. And that is what? Accusation. Satan is the great accuser. In fact, the, the name Satan means adversary or, or accuser. And so it's actually a little bit more of a, a descriptive title than, than a name. He, he accuses, and in this way he wars against Christians. So uh, we are being warred against, uh, but it's, it's not uh, just in the, in the sense that, that he's um, warring against us in physical kinds of ways or spiritual kinds of ways. There are other ways to understand that, but the Bible is quite clear in more than one vision, more than one book, that Satan is an accuser. 
And look what it says here. Day and night. This is not just about Joshua. This is about us. Day and night, prince of dark angels, one of God's great and glorious creations back in the very beginning, stands before him accusing you of your sin. That's going on. Not just Joshua. That's an individual vision. Revelation is a universal one. This is for all Christians. He's accusing us, children of the Lamb, children of God, of our sins. And so when we talk about spiritual warfare then as Christians, uh, this will not be a topical approach to this today, to be clear. I don't have time for that. Uh, but in terms of the passage itself, and, we, and just to touch on this a little bit, when we talk about spiritual warfare as Christians, part of what we talk about biblically is the practice of fighting lies, because Satan's a liar, and he's an accuser. And we talk about fighting those kinds of things and embracing truth. So fighting lies about God that we're entertaining, lies about ourselves or the gospel, and clinging to the truth, which is Christ and, and, his, and his gospel. <clears throat> but what's interesting here, though, in, in Zechariah 3, Satan is a liar, and Jesus calls him that in his ministry. He's the chief of liars. But in this case, he's not lying, right? He's telling the truth. Satan's not lying here about Joshua. Joshua is filthy. He's just asserting something that's true about him before God. Joshua is filthy. We are sinfully filthy. Satan's not lying. He's exposing, accusing. Notice God doesn't correct him. If Satan was lying, he would be corrected. His lies would be called out. But God does not correct the accusation. It's not a lie. It's an assertion of what's true about this man. And so fighting this idea then as Christians, to bring it back to to, to spiritual warfare and addressing this kind of things. We talk about how the gospel uh, speaks to satanic accusation. Fighting this idea is not saying to Satan or just to ourselves or, or others or whatever the case may be, actually, I'm not filthy. It's not saying that because that's not true. And it takes the focus off of Christ. But rather, warning against this idea is asserting and, and speaking this to our, these kinds of things to ourselves into the context. It's rather saying, I am fought for, I'm clothed, I'm loved by Christ. And so in that sense, I'm not filthy anymore. That's very different. Saying I'm just not filthy at all or sinful at all misses the point entirely, and, and that's not what's going on here. Rather saying, in Christ I'm not filthy, or because I'm fought for and cleansed and loved, that, that in his protective love, that, that I have this new identity, and in that sense, I'm, I'm not filthy anymore. There's this Latin phrase uh, called simul justice et peccator, which means simultaneously just or righteous and sinful at the same time. That's the Christian reality. The Christian reality, not pre-conversion, uh, of course, because we're not justified then. Uh, we're simultaneously just or made righteous before God because Christ died for us, but we also have this old self, this sinful self as well. Simultaneously, we are, we are both. And so Satan then is right about Joshua, and he's right about us. We are filthy, wicked people. We've done wrong. We've offended God. We've worshipped the self. We've hurt others, and it grieves him. Satan's right, we're wicked, but he's also wrong about us at the same time. We are accepted, we're justified, regardless because Jesus is our advocate. He fights for us, he goes to bat for us, and so in him and his work, we, we are clean. Interpersonally, too, I think this is really helpful, uh, not just as we think about what's true about us before God, and we'll talk more about the gospel here in a second that this uh, vision beautifully portrays. Uh, but interpersonally, too, when we're, when we're accused or criticized by another person, you know, the, the thought should not be, how dare they? I'm not that bad. That's defensive. And it's not really true. <laughs> you know, but rather, actually, when we get the criticism, I'm a lot worse than they think. I am that bad. Well, whether it's a justifiable criticism or not is beside the point. When we get criticism or accusation, one of the thoughts we should have as Christians is, yeah, I mean, it's a kernel of truth there. Or I'm actually a lot worse than they think I am. I use that one all the time. It's one of the most freeing thoughts I have that helps me absorb criticism all the time is, actually, they're kind of right. And actually, if they had any idea of what I'm like, you know, uh, really in here, uh, they'd have worse things to say about me. 
So it's actually a very humble, insight, humility-inciting thought, and it's true, and it flows from visions like this and just from what the Bible says about us. We are, in ourselves, rebels, and we have this filth and this uh, sin inside us. But we don't stop there either. Uh, you know, uh, thinking, yeah, I'm a mess uh, in, in everything is one half of it, but also thinking, ah, but I'm loved is the other side. And so I'm pure in God's sight. Missing the, the filth side of our story and identity leads us to pride and defending the self and having a very thin skin. We just can't handle the criticism because it's about us. And we might call it a lie. But the gospel gives us, as we've been saying in this series a couple of times already, the gospel gives us humility and boldness at the same time. It is the thing, the thought, the reality that will make you extremely humble and extremely bold at the same time. With criticism, then, it, it will free us not to freak out because we know we're sinners. But it also will save us from being crushed by it at the same time because we have Christ. Because in him we're clean, in him we're saved. Do you see? It's the only thing. A one-sided, overly simplified view of who we are before God uh, will lead you to be thin-skinned or defensive at criticism or just crushed underneath the weight uh, of being looked down upon, of being ridiculed, of being accused of anything. Uh, so the gospel alone will humble us and give us great boldness to actually interpersonally talk to people and actually resolve conflict and actually not be destroyed by it, you know, but actually communicate and actually have that humility that, that, um, that God wants uh, for us. All right, so that's the first thing, is looking at Satan, the accuser, and to talk through a few things there. But let's move on uh, to looking at the meat of this vision. Christ as advocate and forgiver and cleanser. So let's back up a little bit here and look at the first five verses again. Uh, it's almost a courtroom-like situation. All right, so I don't know if you guys have read this before or not. Uh, maybe you have. It's uh, one of the, uh, in one sense, it's really hard to understand, but in another sense, it's one of the clear visions we get, uh, which says a lot about Zechariah, uh, clear visions we get. Uh, about, about God and salvation and so forth. Um, but almost a courtroom-like situation that occurs where you have a, a sinner before God with Christ beside that sinner. Uh, the, the bad news is, the, kind of the dark shroud over the situation, is that, uh, like Joshua, we are filthy. And actually, filth here uh, in the Hebrew means filthy. That's why we translate it that. But it's used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to vomit and human excrement. It's a very, very, uh, it's, it's almost like the English waters it down too much. <clears throat> filthy is a really, really nasty kind of filthy. Think excrement filthy. It's that bad. We have to understand this, you guys. If we don't understand the seriousness of how bad things are in our sin, we'll never want the gospel like we should. The Bible is not mince words when it talks about us and our sinful state. It doesn't just say, yeah, I've done a few bad things. It says we're literally covered in human excrement and vomit before a holy God. See our need? See how it's heightened? See how bad things are? And we haven't just done a few bad things. We're a stench. We're covered in this kind of stuff. And to use another metaphor here, walking into the whitest and cleanest of mansions and all eyes are on us, and the owner now, God, approaches you know, and, and so what happens next is extremely important. And some of you guys may have never read the Bible before and you're here and you're wondering. There's a lot of dramatic tension here. What's God going to do to someone who's in that way in their sins? Who's covered in human excrement but is in the heavenly courts? What's he going to do? There's this tension, right? And, and not only that, but Satan this angel of light, this, this prince of demons is accusing, pointing it out, saying, God, you might have missed this, but look at his back. You know, look under his arms. Look inside his mouth. So we have that going on at layer as well. So what happens next is extremely important. Tons of tension. What is God going to do? Is he going to entertain Satan's accusations? Is he going to sentence Joshua or, or worse? You know, one of the big questions we, we need to have here, just as believers or not, as, as students of the Bible, readers of the Bible, is what does God do in the face of sin? This kind of sin. Not unintentional, oh, I did something kind of, you know, 
a little bit bad, a clean sin, this kind. What does God do in the face of sin when he's actually in the presence of it here? What does he do? Well, look what he does. He first, in the first couple of verses, rebukes Satan. So he rebukes the accuser, right? The one covered in human excrement. He'll, he'll address that in a second. But first, he addresses the accusation, which is incredible. You know, he asks, he asks a question right away when he says, is this not a brand plucked from the fire, Satan? In other words, is this not someone who's been saved? Haven't I identified this person to be saved? You know, as, as Christians, as we look at stuff like this, we, we have to, and I think I used this phrase last week, but um, we have to add to our imagery of, of gospel, uh, our, our arsenal, excuse me, of gospel imagery, stuff like this. We, this, is, this is true about us. This is true now. This isn't just a conversion image. This is a, an everyday thing for Christians, as Revelation 12 indicates. Day and night, we are being accused. So, so it's for us as well. So the first thing he does is really important. He rebukes Satan so he can no longer speak. We notice that he's not speaking in the entire passage. That's, that's right off the bat really good news, right? So he stops the source. He, he, he shuts up the headwaters of all this list of things we've done. So he stops the source, and then he addresses uh, the, issue, the issue further. But we have to see that not just as something he's doing for Joshua, but for us. If we want this to be relevant and to speak, because it's true. Revelation 12 gets at this. Do you guys know this, that this is actually in the heavenlies right now happening for you guys? Revelation 12 says, day and night you're being accused. This is God's posture towards the accused, the filthy. It's amazingly good news. Do you know that, that God rebukes the devil when the devil says that you're a sinner? He rebukes evil. He rebukes the accuser. He rebukes the source. Isn't it amazing? He doesn't destroy you. He doesn't address you, you, you and your filth first. He'll clean you. But right off the bat, to know that God is a God who uh, addresses evil like this is incredible. That that God rebukes the devil. Uh, he said, he basically, what he says is, when our sin is brought before him, he says, silence to the devil, and he claims us as his own. It's incredible grace. He's doing that for you right now. So even when you're in sin, especially when you're in, this is a, a sin imagery. When you're sinning, is this what you're thinking? When you've done something wrong, is this partly what you think about God? Maybe you didn't know it was this bad, that you were, that you were, being accused on this level, but God goes to bat for you. He fights for you. He silences the devil instead of destroys you. Incredible grace. Then he proceeds here to, as it says, dress Joshua in clean garments. And, and, and note here who's the active party, and Peter was getting at this with the last, the last song. This is the gospel. How much of this does Joshua do for himself? How much does he take upon his shoulders? Notice that he doesn't really say a word, right? It's the same with us in terms of salvation. We say nothing, but we receive everything. It's God who rebukes evil here. It's God who plucks us up from the fire. It's God who takes sin away and clothes us with pure clothes. This is God's work. And, and, and it's actually pretty unfair if you think about it. It's an, it's an injustice. Uh, that God would treat us in, in this manner as a just God. But remember, this is a prophecy, so it's Christ pointing. What Zechariah sees in part here, Christ accomplishes in full. So when we ask the question, how can this be? How can God be just and do these kinds of things? The answer to that tension is Christ himself. This is how he's able to, as uh, Romans 3.26 says, be just and the justifier at the same time. So Romans 3 says, through Jesus, God is able to be just, because sin is being punished on him, it's being placed on him, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ Jesus. So this is where the tension's resolved. Because Jesus dies for our sins, takes it upon himself, God is being just, and he's the justifier. So he's the reconciler, he's the cleaner, he's the one that says, you know, you, you can be free, you're forgiven. So the injustice is at least partially solved. There's still kind of an issue with fairness here, right? Because Jesus is still, there's, there's nothing fair about God dying for us. It's not fair. 
But as it is, God deals in love, not paychecks or karma. Love isn't really fair. Probably a song or two about that. I couldn't find one, but uh, it sounds like a song title. Love isn't really fair. It's not fairness and love a lot of times are at odds. They don't play by the same rules. If karma ruled the universe, this vision would not be in existence. Zechariah would not have seen it. What would God have done? What if God was a boss and he dealt in paychecks and graded on job performance? Is this the vision that, that Zechariah would have gotten? It's not fair, but it's full of love. If we want fairness, the Bible is going to be a very hard book to swallow. Uh, God isn't fair, the gospel is not fair, but it is full of grace and love. It's not fair because it's not based on what we, what we do or have to give. It's actually really good news that it's unfair. It's just attention that it's, that it's unfair. It's good news for us. Uh, and good news for God and his glory. And good news for us, loved creatures of, of his. So a few more verses here to look at and just consider from the New Testament. Luke 22, 31 to 32 says, Peter, Peter, behold, this is Jesus speaking, Satan demanded to have you, he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Romans 8, 33 to 34 says, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us, like the angel of the Lord in, in uh, Zechariah. And then Revelation 19, 7 to 8. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. So one thing to note with these last two uh, verses especially is note the association of wearing white and being justified with things like Jesus' prayers and intercession and his death. So in that, in that second passage, it says, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died and who was raised. So because of that death, because of his resurrection, who is to condemn? And in this last passage too, when the lamb is talked about, that's death imagery. Christ will always be referred to as the lamb who is slain. He'll be known as that. That's the essence of his ministry. There's nothing greater in, in his ministry than his death and resurrection. He's the lamb of God. So associated with his death is this opportunity now to be, it was actually says it's granted to her, so it's, it's given to the bride to clothe herself with white and fine linen, which is a very similar vision to what Zechariah seen in chapter 3. Because of death, we get pure, this purity now. We get to wear white because Christ has bled. And so his death then, this is another, just to think about this, is a bit of a maxim for this idea the cross stops Satan's mouth. There's nothing more to say because your sin is forgiven. That could be a satanic thing or something other Christians are accusing you of or making you feel low in an immature, unjust basis or a non-Christian. That could happen. What the cross does, though, is it shuts Satan's mouth. It changes things. Though there might be truth in the accusation, it has no teeth anymore. Because we're forgiven. When God says forgiven, I mean, notice that there's, there's no comeback for Satan here. There's no, yeah, but hold on, hold on. In the vision, there's nothing for him to say. When God says, actually, this one covenant human excrement is mine, Satan has nothing to say. Because who can, who can like, rebuke God for that? Who can say, bad choice? What's the comeback? logically or otherwise what's the comeback i mean what, what god is justified who can bring any charge against it's the question in the, in the new testament in the spirit prepositionally in the spirit of this vision that zechariah gets in chapter three so guys when we're, when we're then accused by by the devil himself you know when, when he asks to sift us like wheat when, when we're spiritually up to our eyeballs and vomit and human waste this is the question we have to ask ourselves. Do we think a couple of good works are going to remedy that situation? A couple of good moral deeds? Things are really, really bad, you guys. Really bad. And Zechariah is, in, in part, seeing this vision to help paint that. And the rest of the Bible kind of underlines it, undergirds it differently. 
accused by the devil himself, asked to sift us like wheat, when we're spiritually up to our eyeballs and vomit, a couple of good works, are, that's not going to change anything. We need a bath, like 16 baths in a, in a row, and then, and then, and then some. Uh, new clothes. And more than that, the, the hope of God saying, is he not a brand plucked from the fire? You know, notice God's here is not asking any kind of righteous deed to be done by Joshua. Nothing. He's just declaring him clean. He's declaring him righteous. He's declaring him his. Is he not my brand? Have not I done a great thing? And Satan has no comeback. Again, we say this a lot, but where's the law here? Gloriously absent. We need his grace. Uh, we need that hope. You know, and, and again, this is not just a picture of conversion here. This is the everyday. Revelation 12 says this is the everyday of the Christian life. Uh, Romans 8 talks about the present. Romans 19 talks about the future. Zechariah 3 is kind of a past vision, but it's the whole of salvation history. The whole of the Christian experience is kind of this, this is the tension. This is the dilemma. This is the drama. This is the problem that God is every day constantly overcoming for you. Every day he's going to bat for you. Every day he's fighting for you. Every day he's atoning for you. Every day he's loving you. Every day he's rebuking Satan instead of you. And you haven't done anything for that. Isn't that incredible? This is what he's like. This should humble our socks off, but bless our socks off at the same time. It's kind of offensive and unfair, but gloriously true. You know, if if it's a bitter pill, uh, there's actually an image in Revelation 10, I think, that talks about the scroll John has to eat, I believe. I love it. I don't even know what it means, but I love it. And, and it says it's kind of, it's, it's bitter like something, uh, and then it's, it's sweet like honey. Bitter and sweet. It's like the gospel. It's going to be bitter and sweet. Really hard to take sometimes, uh, but, uh, but the best thing you've ever heard. Because if God is actually like this, and if you're actually like Joshua, who, what can touch you? We should live these like, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, you know, th- these lives of almost indestructibility. I'm, I'm blanking on the word, but this, you know, uh, we should be almost invincible in a spiritual sense, you know? That confident, that humble, that able to, in a good way, do damage to the kingdom of darkness and enter this world and love freely and a whole slew of other things. Uh, so, so this is not just a picture of conversion, but the everyday of the Christian life. This is not, this isn't just happened, this is happening. And then he moves on to this uh, third thing, which is uh, to give solemn assurance to Joshua, which is basically to say, more grace is on the way. So we got this image of this one guy, and what happened to him before God, a picture of the gospel, but then it builds to something even greater. So we've kind of already touched on it, but and connected some dots. We're going to do more of that. So remember the issue that we talked about last week. Uh, Zechariah and, and all Old Testament prophets have these uh, embedded clues within them sometimes or ways of describing and stating certain things that drives the story forward to its proper conclusion, which is Christ. And in verses 6 to 10 are basically this clue for this section at least, but really for the whole book in one sense too. Verses 6 to 10 basically say this is not just about Joshua in many and various ways. This is not just about Joshua. If we didn't have those verses, we could be kind of fooled into thinking that it was. But because we have these verses about Joshua as this example, microcosm, but then these last five verses that heighten it, we know that it's not just about him. So how do we know? He says in verse... um, Verse 8, he says that you, Joshua, and and your friends too, but Joshua's included in this, you are a sign. So he's saying that you are a sign of something else. You're a symbol of something else. You're a sign that something's coming, uh, hence hence the word. And not just a sign of or for future Christians. We've kind of touched on that idea. He is that. He's a sign of us. But he's also a sign of Christ himself. And you see this on on a few levels. One, I'll just kind of go through this a little bit quicker because we'll come up later in the series. One, when the branch comes up, it's, it's mentioned as if the branch would come from him somehow. Uh, this, this idea uh, in the passage, it talks about, I will send my servant the branch. 
uh, here. Elsewhere in the Old Testament is a, a messianic image linked uh, to the shoot of Jesse, uh, which is um, an ancestor of David. So Isaiah 11 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall, shall rest upon him. And so one thing we're going to actually see in this series, to kind of just whet your appetite for this a bit, is how uh, Jesus is, uh, and Joshua himself here is a precursor to Christ, is a priest and a king. And that's something that actually kind of broke rules a bit in the Old Testament. You couldn't mix the two, but Christ does. And so he's this new thing. We'll talk more about that later. But this is kind of a kingly passage. And so to, for, for Zechariah to see this branch, which is a picture of Jesus, it's a messianic, hope-filled image, a servant branch, uh, connected with the priest, Joshua, is to make it a priestly image uh, as, as well. So we have that. Uh, this messianic image linked to Joshua, but then also this stone with seven eyes. It's my favorite image, I think, of the um, series so far. Uh, the stone with seven eyes helps, uh, helps us here as well. Actually, Revelation helps us to read it, um, where it says in Revelation 5, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes. So again, remember this principle, uh, if you're new, you haven't heard this yet, but um, when things are difficult in the Bible, when they're hard to, hard to interpret, look for where else they come up in the Bible where it's more clear, and use that to read into um, uh, the, the, the less clear section. And in this case, Revelation 5 says that the seven eyes are characteristic of Jesus, who is the Lamb. And so reading that into Zechariah then, uh, tells us that this stone of seven eyes is actually a picture of Christ beforehand, who again is associated with Joshua. And then also his name even here too. Uh, Joshua is the, um, the Hebrew form of the Greek Jesus. And so, I mean, literally in one sense, Joshua is like a Jesus uh, by name, which has is, which is actually led many here as well. And, and this will be a little bit of a shift uh, in terms of how we were talking before. Uh, led many ancient commentators and, and common ones, uh, or um, current ones, and myself included, uh, to see Joshua then is, is a high priest who's like Jesus who will come later, but, but not just a high priest, uh, the high priest who points to Christ as this filthy guy. You know, we, we could ask at this point in the vision, why is it Joshua in the vision? Why does it have to be the high priest? Why couldn't it be any, any old Israelite, any common man or woman? Why couldn't it be just a nameless person, random? Why the high priest? And part of the answer there is because Jesus is a high priest. He's the final one. And so this vision then is not just about our sin being taken away. It's not just about a declaration of cleanliness. It is that. But it's also about our filth being placed on Christ the ultimate Joshua, the ultimate high priest, the servant branch, the, the seven-eyed savior, lamb of God, you could say. Uh, it's about being placed on him who is then judged but, but cleaned and then resurrected three days later when he's raised. And when you think about that then, the love factor goes up really high, right? When, when you think about how God is not just the declarer of, of our righteousness and our cleanliness, and he is that, but the way he did that was to actually absorb our filth. But God did that for us. He did that for you guys. Um, only God who loves us is going to do that. It's amazing grace. He's done that for you all today and for me. God uh, coded in human excrement for us. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, coded in vomit for us on the cross. That's the image Joshua, that Joshua is kind of embedded in, in this vision and that Zechariah is getting. Uh, in that way, he loved. In that way, he bore our sin. We, in, in one sense, we have to conclude this. If Christ did, if we believe that Christ bore our sin, and our sin is like spiritual vomit, then that's what Christ bore. As a high priest, he's, in, he's, he's mediating us in God uh, by, by bearing our sin in this capacity. And it says there at the end, to, to make this, this strong link with Christ, and especially the, that, that first Good Friday, he says, in that day, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. 
which is a fascinating phrase. I mean, to say that I will remove all the sins that, I mean, think about just that in terms of America for, for, for an instance. Think about all the sins that have ever happened on this soil, ever, that are currently happening and that will ever happen. All the injustices, all the sins, all the evils, you know, corporate big picture as a nation, but I mean talking individually too. It's just happening right now. You know, and, and this says in regards to Israel, but, but I think for the world, that God will erase it all in a single day? What kind of power is that? What kind of salvation is that? You know, this is, this is clearly something that's never happened before, thus far in Old Testament history, that's not happening in Zechariah's day, but that will happen. It actually it uses the future tense here. I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. As I become human, God is saying, as I take on your filth, as a priest, as I, as I go to bat for you and advocate for you, like the angel of the Lord standing by Joshua here. He's a part of that. As the branch comes to serve, as, as Spence read earlier, he's a servant branch, the one who came to serve, not to be served. God is a servant, not one who asks to be served. He's that kind of God as well. That's the point. Joshua and these associated objects are signs of Christ. There's tons of hope all of these images and, and more. He is a God of love. Who gets, and it gets more personal when, when the worst things we've ever done uh, are, are laid upon him before God. Uh, that's, that's the gospel. It's that substitution at its best. That's, that's love. Not karma, not a paycheck type idea with God, but, but that's love. And so there are two things here then. Uh, the first... Um, is, and I mentioned this phrase that last week and today, we need to, I think Zechariah is very helpful here in any kind of apocrypha or apocalyptic imagery, rather, um, is we can add to this arsenal of gospel imagery these things that he's seen. Because you don't see this image verbatim in the New Testament. This is what's helpful about the Old Testament. One of the many things is you don't see this image. I mean, you see it statement-wise, and you see it happen. It's implicit all over the place, but the Old Testament is informing what Jesus did. You know, so if you just read, actually in, in John 19, I think it actually just says, and he was crucified. That's just one sentence in the New Testament in reference to, to Christ's death, and then it goes on and describes some things, but and he was crucified. Like, we can read that, and that's just history without this, without Zechariah 3 and other related passages, right? That's it's just history. But what, Zechariah is, what God is helping Zechariah and all of us through his writings to see is that what happened on the cross was this type of advocacy. It was this type of filth erasing. It was this type of love. This type of willingness for God to take on that type of spiritual filth for us and to bear it on a cross among criminals in the most shameful way possible you can, and painful way you can imagine for those six hours. Um, that it, it explains it. It, it gives a, a visual, an artistic visual, a symbolic visual to the more prepositional, clear statements of the New Testament. Because God knows we love both, most of us. Are, I don't know. If you, you lean one way, that's great. That's fine. Acknowledge that about yourself if you're like, I love the art stuff, but this is really hard. Just give me something clear, you know, if you're like that kind too. That's great. Uh, but it's, it's a diverse set of scriptures for a reason. Because. We're created a little bit differently here, but God knows we're multifaceted. We need different angles. And even this idea of looking at Joshua as a picture of us, that's one kind of, if you picture this passage or the gospel itself like a multifaceted diamond, one facet, one angle on the many-sided diamond is seeing Joshua as a picture of us. That's the gospel. If we twist that just a little bit, all of a sudden he becomes a picture of Christ. Same passage, same truths. All of a sudden, there's a, there's a divine angle here where we're, we're hoping for a more cosmic fulfillment of this very punctiliar vision. Could it happen for more? And the way it's going to happen, this is the, the beauty of, the, the, um, of, of taking one event and making it multifaceted. God does this all the time. Is seeing It's actually Joshua himself, who as a man is being atoned for, but also as a high priest, who then is a Christ figure, is showing how he's going to atone. 
The way God deals with our sin is becoming like us. We need a mediator. We we don't need a, a, a few good things to do as human beings. We need a God who declares us righteous because of his son. We need grace. Bad. And this passage has that for us. So, the first thing I would say uh, that Zechariah is saying, God is saying to all of us through this is, believe in the gospel. Believe in this image that it can be yours today. And if it's true, some of you are not Christians yet, I know that. Um, if it's true, then you have to do nothing except just believe in it. Was Joshua asked anything? Did God say, Joshua, this can all be yours if? You know, but wait, there's more kind of deal you might see on TV or something like it's not not nothing like that right it's all grace it's all given nothing's earned he doesn't even speak so believe the gospel and if you're a Christian believe it again because this vision's not you at conversion you got to get that out of your head there's nothing in this passage of the Bible that says this is a past event for you this is present and it's good news because here's what's very clear Satan accusing you of your sin before a holy God is happening right now as I speak in the heavenlies. So if that's happening, that's the bad news, then we need this passage to be true present as well. And, and the good news is it is. This type of advocacy, this type of death, this type of love, this type of substitution, this type of salvation is true now as well. And so Christian, believe it. Breathe it in. Soak it up. Drink it in. Uh, it is uh, it's the gospel for you today as, as well. And then last in verse 10, too, a couple of quick comments on this. Um, I, I love that it ends like this. The first nine verses happen, and we talked about that. Then in verse 10 it says, In that day, which is actually a clue in the prophets. When you see in that day, uh, think the, the day of Christ's death and resurrection and ascension. Uh, it's kind of one package, but... The day of salvation. It's a, it's a phrase used actually in the book of Acts in the New Testament when they're quoting Joel 2, which is an Old Testament prophet about some other spirit things that are happening in the church. They quote a passage in Joel that says, in that day you will prophesy and pray and dream dreams, if you know that passage. It says that phrase, in that day. The that day is from this vantage point in history, still future. But it's a day now that we are in. So in that day, in the New Testament, when Christ dies, when Christ is raised, declares the Lord of hosts, every one of you will invite his neighbor to come under his vine and under his fig tree. Isn't that great? You know, there, there's something I think about being shown immense grace as people that should lead us instinctually to community, hospitality, and evangelism. You know, when God says, when it declares, you are okay with God, uh, we, it, there's something about reconciling with other Christians that just kind of flows naturally, should flow naturally. It's really hard still. But from the headwaters of that, that greater event, being cleansed from our sin by God. And that's kind of what you see here. Part of what the vision is, you will be saved from your sin and you will hang out with other people. Underneath the umbrella of being saved from your sin, you will have lunch with people. You'll dine with people. You'll show hospitality. You'll be at peace with enemies. You'll evangelize. You'll, you'll, you'll say, you'll invite others into the grace that you've been shown. So come under this, come under my vine, which in John 15, 5, what is Christ called there? The vine. Right? He is the true vine. But we can invite people into the grace that we've been shown. And evangelistically, I think this is huge for us as Christians because when we evangelize, Christianity does not say, I have ascended to this high place of spiritual knowledge, so let me tell you how you're wrong now. Uh, but rather, I've been shown immense grace by a loving God. Let's eat. That, that's evangelism. And let me tell you about it sometime, but let's, let me hear your story as well. Because we haven't ascended to anything, but just believed in a God who has descended, I think that speaks to our evangelistic efforts. You know, we can dine and relax and eat out and have a beer in our backyard with our neighbors and Christian, Christian brothers and sisters alike and enjoy the fact that we are free in the gospel to eat whatever we want and drink and enjoy season change and 
kids and families. And, you know, it, it's amazing that this kind of gospel does actually speak into everything under the sun. You know, verse 10 didn't have to be there technically, but it is. The vision of the future is verses 1 to 9, but with a little bit of a speak into verse 10. You know, and so, so I think there's a challenge for us. As, I'm speaking to Christians here for a second. If, if, if you're not, you can just check out for a second. But if you're a Christian, what are you doing in light of verse 10? How is your life looking very uh, interpersonal? How are you loving the church? Are you inviting people into the grace you've been shown? Who are you sharing the gospel with? Who are you eating with, Christian and non? Um, in, in a way to reflect how, man, the gospel is such that God can dine with sinners now. That's how much I've been saved. And there's a way to show that off, I think, and fulfill verse 10 with our actions. Not to be saved by it. This is a secondary thing, not primary, but a secondary encouragement and exhortation still nonetheless for us. And so think about that. Ramifications for that for your life uh, this week and, and beyond. With that said, guys, let's pray. God, thank you for this vision of the gospel in Joshua 3, a clear vision of what you really are trying to say through Zechariah. It's not about physical walls and temples and cities being rebuilt. It's not ultimately about Israel coming back from Babylonian captivity. It's about people coming back from spiritual captivity. It's about what happened to Joshua happening for all through another Joshua who would come to mediate us as sinners uh, before a holy God by bearing our filth. Father, so God, thank you for this multifaceted, just complicated, very symbolic, and in some cases just flat-out weird vision of the future you gave Zechariah, but how it's just saturated with you and your goodness. Um, when I didn't talk about this, when I think of those seven eyes, I think of seven being that perfect number biblically and how you perfectly see us in our distress, Jesus. You are the ultimate cornerstone, the ultimate rock that was split in the desert, and so therefore you are the ultimate stone, period, biblically, but also the stone of the seven eyes who sees us perfectly in our distress and who judges rightly and who comes to our rescue. And so, God, I pray that you would wash us, clean us our filth, uh, amazing love and humbling, humbling gospel to know that God came into the world to take on an injustice himself. We talk and we just sang about scandalous love. That's scandalous love uh, when God himself takes on that kind of filth. And as 2 Corinthians 5 says, became sin, he who knew no sin became sin so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. He became sin somehow on the cross. Even though you never knew it, you never sinned. You're perfect. Amazing, scandalous love. Uh, change us with that, God. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.